This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Cecilia Wagel talks about modernism, postmodernism, and Vatican II. One body. One body. What is modernism? How does modernism affect Vatican II and vice versa? Well, let's find out. Cecilia is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Kelly Roper. Cecilia Wagel, and she is going to be, her topic is going to be modernism, postmodernism, and Vatican II. Our alternative title is Okay Boomer. So we'll, we'll see. And it says, Why the Youth View the Church So Differently. So let's jump into that. But we know that all good things begin with prayer. So would you be willing to lead us in a prayer for this next segment? Yes, I think I need one today. Okay. It's been a crazy day, <laughs> it huh? It has. It has. <laughs> well, we're glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, come into the minds and the hearts of all who are listening and of those who are speaking. Help us to learn truth, to hear truth, to take what is good and apply it to our lives, to find you in the words that we hear and the words that we say, and to speak all that is good from the church and all that is love. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So by way of introduction, Cecilia Wagel um, has a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Fort Hayes State University and a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. She previously taught high school theology, but now is staying home to raise her children. She currently lives in Great Bend. So thank you for being here with us today. How old are your children? Um, seven, five, and three. Ah, beautiful ages. What? How wonderful. Boys, girls? Boy, girl, boy. Boy, girl, boy. Awesome. Really, really great. So so uh, you, you definitely have lots going on in your life, and, and we're grateful that, that you are here today. Again, talking about the topic modernism, postmodernism, and Vatican II, or the alternative title, Okay, Boomer, Why the Youth View the Church So Differently. So the first question in this is, how would you say that younger people view the church differently than their parents or their grandparents? I think that most of the, we're going to say the boomer generation just as a shorthand. Obviously, there are differences, and it doesn't, you know, those years don't align perfectly. Yeah. But most of the boomer generation, the older generation, yeah. um, view the church as an institution, as, you know, a set of moral guidelines, a place of liturgy, and, and it's, you know, it is special to them. It's not that there's no nostalgia or anything wrapped up in that. Of course it is. And that they have relationships with Christ. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But the primary way I think the majority of them view the church is as this great institution, as one of the, you know, it, it teaches truths, it is, has structure. Right? Whereas I think a lot of the younger generation, millennials or Gen Z as a shorthand, they aren't looking for that. And what they're looking for in the church is primarily a set of experiences. You know, they're looking for, relationship isn't the right word because everyone's looking for relationship. That's the human condition. But they're looking for 
these experiences that feel true to them, right? An experience of truth. Less so than a message of truth. It, it's the same thing, but it's slightly different, right? I mean, a true message will feel real to them, they think. But they're less interested in proofs and, and the logic of it and the reason of it as much as they're interested in knowing this feels like home. And so I think what you find, um, particularly in apologetics, is the pamphlets. For example, when I was young, you know, we had those like Catholic Answers little books, like a uh, soft cover mm-hmm. with the yellow squares in the middle, apologetics parts one through eight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which were great, and they had a question, and they had an answer. It was very Thomas Aquinas-like, right, about how to answer this apologetics question. But I find, I found when I was teaching, for example, that those were mostly just a turnoff, even to students who love the church and, you know, didn't doubt the truth, but they saw those as being so shallow, right, as not really not really showing the beauty, right, or the richness of the church, but just being argumentative, right? And that's not something that most of the younger generation are into. I think the next question really then is why? You know, why was there this shift? Mm -hmm. And is it a problem, right? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, and you know, why do you think that the, that the way people look at the church has changed? You know, why is this shift that you're, you're talking about? Why are we having this shift? I really think the shift was a shift in culture. Mm-hmm. And it was bigger than in the church. In fact, it was mostly outside of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the topic, the title, Modernism and Postmodernism. Mm-hmm. You know, modernism was an intellectual movement that began in the 1700s, but... It didn't really reach its zenith until about the 1950s. And what modernism is, is everything we think about the 50s, right? This um, man has made progress. It's at its peak. Our rationality is subduing nature. And so we have new technologies and new innovations. And we're going out and we're conquering space and we're conquering the world. And we have cars and flying machines. And we can do anything we set our minds to, right? That's, that's the mantra, so to speak, of the modern movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say modern, it's a specific philosophical movement. Someone needs to tell philosophers to stop naming their movements words that mean now, mm-hmm. right? But it's not now anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. the modern movement is dying off. It's mm-hmm. been re- declining really since then, you know, it... It started with the philosophers, but it trickles down, right? It trickles down through the universities until, like I said, in kind of about the 50s, 50s, 60s, that was at its height. Okay. Right? Whereas most of Gen Z and millennials, you know, millennials and Gen X were sort of a transition, mm-hmm. depending on where they were and who they were around, kind of a transitional time. But most of Gen Z and millennials, they have grown up in a postmodern culture, mm-hmm. you know, and postmodernism is a response to modernism. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it doubts that man's reason is really as the pinnacle as the modern people thought. It doubts that we're really as reasonable. It doubts that truth is as objective and can be easily found by logic 
or in some more extreme situations, even that it really exists all the way. You know, I had a student uh, when I was teaching theology. I had a student once. I had made a statement about the Eucharist. And she said, well, that's your opinion. And I said, not not really. It was a factual statement. You can agree or disagree with it. You may disagree with what I just said, but it's not an opinion statement. It's not something that can be both maybe true or not true. It just depends on your taste. Mm and she she didn't understand that like she really didn't understand what i was trying to say mm-hmm. and so i said you know if i said 2 plus 2 equals 5 mm-hmm. that's a factual statement i would be wrong right and you could say you are wrong mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it i can't just say well it's my opinion that 2 plus 2 equals 5 and and she says well there are different kinds of maths. And I honestly didn't know how to answer that at the time because, because we know there are objects and if there are and objects that can be numbered and two objects and two objects is not five objects. But the world for her, and she was in high school, was insignificant, you know, immaterial enough that, you know, maybe it was just a different way of looking at it. And isn't that the way that our society is moving right now is, you know, there's there's no, you know, real truth. It's, you know, whatever you think it is, it's that's it. It is definitely. I mean, it's it's very, very hard to have um, discussions between the generations right now because the older generation is so focused on truth and reasons and and this this equals that and the younger generation even not that they're all unreasonable i mean that particular student she was fairly unreasonable right (laughs) (laughs) but and they're not but it's just not the way they think it's not what they've grown up around and you know even even people who may be less like that they've still grown up around it it still affects the way they view the world yeah right so how are these viewpoints from how people viewed the church in the past, how are they different from, from you know, and, and I think you went into that a little bit. So anything more you want to say about that? I think so, um, because I want to emphasize the similarities in modernism, postmodernism, too, because that is somewhere we can meet. You know, already, we're already departed from the viewpoint of the Middle Ages and, and of classics, you know, the classical Greek philosophy, which was trying to know what the nature of reality was. That's really their main focus. They were trying to see what was out there beyond them and to describe it and to understand it. And you know, around the Renaissance, really, and, and beyond, that focus started to shift to be inward to try to understand ourselves and describe us and know how we, re- how we relate to the world, you know. And so um, both modernism and postmodernism have that in common, and it's, it's a different way of looking at things from the church before. And, you know, the church had some difficulty. You know, we think it's hard now. We think it's hard now with the the moderns and the the modern 
boomers and the postmodern Gen Z. And I know they look at each other and they say, how can you guys think that way? Right? The younger generation think the older one is shallow. And the older generation think the younger ones are dumb. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and they, it feels like it's so antithetical. Right? It feels like they have nothing in common. And what can we do about this? But they do because we really have a similar starting point. But that starting point of, of identity, of who are we, and of looking at things through the human perspective and of starting with human is different from what happened in the church before. That doesn't mean it's wrong because, because God is, while very simple, also very huge. Mm-hmm. You know, and very, you know, we have to understand him in multiplicity right we have to think of him in a million different ways to get close to all the amazing things he is even though he's one but we can't understand that oneness simply right Mm -hmm. and so having the different eras and having you know the scholastic theologians like thomas aquinas who is obviously quite amazing Mm -hmm. and who was able to take classical greek philosophy and apply it to the church and look and say, okay, here's an understanding of reality. Here's how angels work. Here's how, right? And we still believe a lot of those things, right? That's super helpful. But to have that focus and then for have the focus to shift on who are we? Who are, what is our identity? What is our relationship with Christ? You know, that's, it's a huge, it was a huge shift. And really the, the conflict in the church between that shift, the conflict into modernism, was much more tumultuous than the conflict we're going through now. Yeah. Right? Because we really have more in common now than they did then. So how did modern and postmodern viewpoints affect Vatican II and its implementation? Thank you. I, I wanted to talk to about Vatican II because even though I think that you know, on the global church stage, it's starting to finally fade. I know that it's still something that is personally confusing to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, that the the kind of mindset changes in that seem to happen in the church that felt overnight is still confusing yeah. right, to many people. Um, but I think to understand it, we need to understand and remember that Vatican II happened in the 1960s. Yeah. And the modernist movement began in the 1700s. And the church had, you know, in the 1500s, the Council of Trent, uh, the church had kind of hunkered down, right? They, there was the Protestant Reformation, there were all these things, and they continued that trend. Then modernism occurred and in, it was um, denounced as a heresy, right? And the church said, we want nothing to do with it. And they continued to hunker down. Um, but as it became more and more persuasive, and as people recognized some of the good things in it, it became, it came into the church anyway. You know, and there are good things about modernism and postmodernism. You know, because of modernism, we have the modern scientific method. We have all this amazing technology. You know, I love my dishwasher mm. and my washing machine, and that's modernity, right? Yeah. You know, and, and even um, you know, media, like Divine Mercy Radio, mm. um, printing press. I know that happened in 
you know, late 1400s. But, you know, that was the beginning of those innovations, right? Yeah. Um, and continued innovation, you could say, right, beyond that. So modernism came into the church and also modern scholarship. And this is where things got tricky because the modern philosophers, the atheist modern philosophers, were so set on everything descending from reason, man's reason, figuring everything out, everything coming, you know, logical step by step. If you couldn't prove it, it wasn't real. And, and everything having to be a kind of science, you know, that, that you needed to have a first principles, first document, had to lay it all out. And there are good things about that, but there's also times where that's less good. And there was also a lot of criticism, uh, critical thought about anything that wasn't scientifically explainable. And this leaked into the church too. You know, the, the theologians of the early 1900s, they were doubting things like miracles and the Eucharist. And they were writing proofs about how, well, you know, Mary you know, we, we went back to the sources. That was one of the, you know, we went back to the sources and we really don't think Mary was a perpetual virgin or we really don't think, right? And, and so it, the church was becoming more and more split, really, you know, and there was, it was a problem for many reasons, you know, obviously disunity in the church is a problem, but also because one, people didn't know what to believe. There was confusion. They heard this thing from one person and that thing from another, right? And two, um, the intellectuals of the church, for the most part, were exploring this modern, modern church ideas, and it left behind the people who were kind of, um, because the church was not engaging in that, they were not offering any guidance for how to do modern theology. It left the people who were a little more faithful to the church with with just some very bare bones kind of rules, you know, as opposed to um, a dynamic, you know, dynamic ideas, new ideas and in intellectual things coming down. And, and it wasn't, this is where people often criticize the Baltimore Catechism, which was not a bad thing. You know, it was a catechism written for children. And it's a problem if the only thing people know is the catechism written for children, mm -hmm. right? So it did very many good things. But the problem was there wasn't a lot of intellectual Catholicism stuff beyond the Baltimore Catechism, not available to everyone unless they were near a university or something, mm -hmm. right? And so there was this growing divide in the church, and this was all before Vatican II. Mm -hmm. I think people feel often that this was a result of Vatican II, but this was what it was called to address. You know, um, one of the one of the hallmarks of that era of the modern era that is very easily viewable and is one of the things people think of is how the church has changed right how they took off took out the beautiful old back altars and made everything like you know simpler and as some would put it a little more protestant looking right mm -hmm. and again people talk about that as being a result of vatican too but what i've noticed even in western kansas which is a wonderful place and i love it and one of the things western kansas does well is not change mm. they're not on the forefront of new trends they're not trying it they wait and they're not 
it's it's not a place where you expect to see all the new ideas. Mm-hmm. But even in Western Kansas, when I was asking about, oh, well, when was this church redone? Oh, the 1940s, the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Those altars were taken out before Vatican II. Mm-hmm. You know, those, all that was happening. It was already happening in the church. The church just hadn't given us guidance mm-hmm. for how to view it, for what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Right? So... Um, and in fairness, they tried to call Vatican I, right, in, in 1886. And, and it was to address modernity, to address the modern philosophy. But they had one session, and then the Franco-Prussian War started, and people couldn't travel because there was war, and it just got indefinitely suspended and didn't happen again, yeah. right? And so it didn't happen again until, again, 1960s, which, you know, was the end of the modern era's height. And I think that was probably the Holy Spirit. It feels like, it feels like there were so many years of confusion in there. Why God? Sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're still dealing with the aftermath of all that confusion. Yeah. And yet, you know, Vatican II a lot of the bishops came with either they were anti-modernity and they wanted another another um, renouncement, denouncement, there we go, another denouncement of modernity. And that's what they wanted this to be about because even though it had been denounced before, sort of, it had been denounced and then Leo Thirteenth wrote Rerum Novarum, which is amazing. The, the basis of Catholic social teaching. And he was like, okay, these parts bad, but these parts good. And then it was denounced again. And you know, like there's a little flip-flopping in there. Again, confusing, a confusing time. But they wanted, you know, people were still doing it. It was still, it was in Western Kansas, everyone, right? It was everywhere, it was global, you know? And so some people were saying, we want a harder denouncement. And some people came in saying, this is it. The church is going modern. We're going to accept all these things that we've, you know, we're going to throw out miracles and throw out the true presence and all of this, like, old-fashioned hillbilly. That's another very modernist view is that everything new is progress and that all the people who came before were really dumb people who believed crazy myths. And, right, that's, that's part of that modern myth. And they were like, here we go, finally progress in the church. And what happened was neither of those things, right? The church, you know, the council fathers ended up trying very hard to accept what was good in modernity and to denounce what was bad and to leave a lot of wiggle room for future theology and for guidance from the church as we went forward from this. But part of the reason I think the timing is, was, you know, Part of the Holy Spirit was involved in that, even though it seems so late, was because there was already postmodern philosophy that was being taught, and that some of those council members, for example, um, the late Pope John Paul II, Saint Pope John Paul II, who was not a pope, obviously, during Vatican II, but he was a bishop, and he was there. He had some hand in drafting some of the documents, and he was a scholar of phenomenology, you know, which is a postmodern philosophy that seeks to understand who we are through, you know, our experiences, through the phenomena of our experiences. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice some of the language of Vatican II documents, like, you know, man, 
discovers himself and as he and the experience with Jesus Christ I got those words a little wrong but that's you know it's somewhere in there something like that they they sound postmodern right and and I think the world at that time didn't even realize that they weren't prepared for that they read that and it didn't maybe make a lot of sense to a lot of them at the time but it makes those documents a perfect bridge now I think for the newer younger generation because we have now already um, a viewpoint from the church that is showing what's good in modernity and starting to lead us into the postmodern ideas so that it's available to people both old and young right and it's a place we can meet we need to take a short break right now, but don't change that dial. We'll be right back with more from Cecilia Wagle on Modernism, Postmodernism, and Vatican II. We're back on One Body, Stewarding God's Creation. Modernism, Postmodernism, and Vatican II with Cecilia Wagel, Kelly Roper conducts the interview. We are talking with Cecilia Wagel, and she is talking about modernism, postmodernism, and Vatican II, and bringing us a lot of really good information. So do you want to continue on with that, or should I go to the next question? I kind of interrupted you, so I want to make <laughs> sure that I give you your full answer there. Let's go ahead and go on. I can always come back and tie up anything at the end. Okay. All right. So... I think that we are on the last one. How can this knowledge help families who are struggling to pass on the faith? And um, we have just about 20 minutes, and we can come back to to whatever we need to come back with. But, um, you know, just I guess as a side note, you know, I see, you know, you mentioned so much misunderstanding about Vatican II and what it really hoped to accomplish and I do think that that causes division between many good faithful Catholics who say either they want to adhere to pre-Vatican II or you know they want to to you know be in the faith and, and attend a very very holy reverent mass but in their own English language or whatever it is and and so we see a lot of the division that comes from that that's blamed on Vatican II but I I think you're making good points that you know it's it's not all the way that that we see it so so maybe you can talk about how that affects the family and and um, you know make more sense of my rambling here and (laughs) and uh, but but I do see it as a, a, a big problem and I hear often from people who are pre-Vatican too, and, you know, they don't want any of the the new things that are going on in the church. Well, absolutely. You know, it's, it's sad how confusing it has been, you know, and the number one thing that most people don't know about Vatican II is what Vatican II did and didn't say, you know, and, and it's not, 
it's primarily not people's fault. I will say there were definitely, as, as there were in many crisis times of the church, there were leaders who were not good leaders and who didn't speak the truth. You know, um, for example, um, my husband's grandmother, who's a very good woman and tries to do very much what the church wants. But she, we were talking one day and she's still so confused about it. And she'll say, well, you know, when, when I was in school, we were taught that homosexuality was against the church, but I guess that's not true anymore. You know, and she'll say things like, well, when we were in school, we were taught that you really need to go to confession, that that's the way to have your sins forgiven. But, you know, Father Mike, he says that we don't believe that anymore. And, you know, she's following her priest. Mm. You know, she is listening at Sunday Mass and asking them questions and is doing what she thinks the church wants her to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And... She's just confused about it, and yeah. it's not her fault, right. right? Right. And I think that's another thing we have to keep in mind, yeah. that um, there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of anger, in part because Vatican II changed the liturgy, right? The liturgy changed, and it had been the same since Trent, you know, for, that was in the 1500s. It had been the same for 400 years. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, no one remembered by far, no one, generations and generations. You know, before Trent, there was actually more variation in the liturgy, but it was, the church was concerned that people were getting a little crazy with it, and they were trying, there was a lot of, really, there's, there's similarities. There was a lot of misinformation, a lot of misunderstanding, people weren't well catechized, and so that's why, again, they went into that kind of hunkering down, let's streamline things and focus on getting people to do this thing well, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the liturgy changed for the first time in 400 years, and liturgy is so important. It's what, how people interact with God and how people interact with the church in their daily life. Yeah. And for something that was so beautiful and meaningful and nostalgic and part of their heritage to change overnight, that is drastic. I understand why that was hard to take. You know, that would be hard for me to take. But, again, we have to look at, there was already tinkering with liturgy, right? There were already lots of people in places who were trying to do their own thing, trying to do things their own way. There was, you know, the movement trying to push for the vernacular, um, which, as a side note, there was mass in the vernacular in a lot of places in the very early church, mm. you know, and so it's not the first time it's happened in church history. Um, but the movement for the mass in the vernacular, you know, that had been going for 50, 60 years. It was strong. People, there were already priests trying to do their own translations of the mm. mass in the vernacular, you know, that was happening. And so the church was trying to give guidance you know, trying to lead this instead of it just being people doing their own thing, yeah. you know. Um, Did it seem like maybe it's kind of like uh, give them an inch and they'll take a mile, that they kind of took information and just kind of ran with it? I do think so. I think one of the things that happened was when Vatican II did not denounce modernity, people said, oh, well, it must be cool with it then. Mm. And they... And, and I will say, I think it was like 50-50, good intentioned and bad intentions. Mm -hmm. 
I think there were people who were like, I don't really care what the council says. I'm going to do my own thing. And I think there were people who were like, oh, well, I guess this is all allowed now. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that was not true. But and there was some legitimate trying to figure things out, which is going to happen whenever there's a big change. Right. And which was really the kind of catching up with all the years that the church hadn't been guiding all this modern movement. Right. You know, and so for people who may not know, you know, some of the things Vatican II did say was that not all modern technology is bad, that some of it can be used for good. It actually has a document just about media, mm-hmm. just about mass media, social media. Okay. There's a word socials in there somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Social communication, something like that, yeah. right? And of course, Facebook didn't exist, but it almost seemed like they were um, anticipating that, right? Yeah. About <laughs> yeah. how it, it can be used for good or can yeah. be used for evil and calling on Catholics to use it for good, yeah. right? That's how EWTN and probably Divine Mercy Radio, you know, that's where that comes from, yeah. right? Is the church asking for people to use what is good in modernity you know they they developed theology a greater theology of the bishops and the um you know like the bishops councils kind of grew out of that like the usccb they've developed a greater theology of the laity and our role and giving us more of a role um and defining what we can do and and um you know Participating in the Mass doesn't mean we have to say anything out loud, and it doesn't mean we have to be readers or lectors. I mean, that's, that's not what participation in the Mass is. It's about a gift of self, and it's about praying the Mass and presenting yourself as part of this, you know, presenting the sacrifice of the, of the bread and the wine, which, you know, then God turns into a more perfect sacrifice, and a sacrifice of yourself, you know, yeah. bringing yourself to God every Sunday. That's participation in the Mass. And yet, because we are hylomorphic, that's the technical term I'm trying to think of, a, we are mind, soul, body people, right? We are, we're soul and body, we're not just soul. And, you know, sometimes we need physical things, and we need to have the experience there's that little postmodernism coming in mm-hmm. right we need to have that to express that that sometimes having a little more participation can be good for people you know i mean there's i feel like we're finally coming to a kind of settling down post vatican II. you know it's been kind of in turmoil for for a while which Again, for a little church history, that happened after almost every council. Mm. Like, it was just expected. There were councils that there were full wars, you know, battles, people died, fought over afterward. You know, there were councils where people were in schism for a couple hundred years until they could finally come together. You know, like, as church councils have gone, this was not the most divisive. (laughs) But, it, you know, it's the one we lived through. I didn't live through Vatican II, but I lived through the division. Right. Mm -hmm. It's the one we're experiencing now. What Vatican II does and doesn't say, you know, it never said, don't focus on the Eucharist. Right. It never said, um, oh, well, the Bible should be interpreted as a myth and we shouldn't take that literally. It didn't say that. It did say that we should use historical sources to enhance our understanding of the Bible. It did say that God is present 
in a different kind of way than the Eucharist, but present in the assembly, in the lay assembly at the church, is present in the priest and in the bishop in different ways, different roles. You know, it was expanding that theology, but not denying any of it that came before. Yeah. You know. Well, I want to come back to that last question that I never really answered because okay. we got sidetracked by Vatican II. Okay, sorry but about that. I, I really want to talk about how this can help families because it's something I see. It's something I see particularly where an older generation is just so confused why their son or daughter or grandchild has left the faith. And they are giving them proofs and they are giving them Catholic Answers uh, booklets and they and it it sometimes turns that young person off more you know it they they see this as an insult you know and and as you know like they because you know they're reacting it's a reaction against modernism and they see that modernism wasn't the amazing end-all be-all it thought it was right that science is good but sometimes science messed up and now we have some difficult environmental situations and some you know medical situations like the opioid crisis that we wouldn't have been in if we hadn't you know if science had maybe had a little more humility right, right. um they see how people can be manipulated sometimes through you know, other people use their reason against them, and they have all these proofs, and they have all these I- ideas, but, you know, they're not telling the whole story. And they feel like they're try- you're trying to manipulate them, Yeah. right? Because to them, they need it to feel true, to give, um, to resonate with something deep within them, to give credence to that logic and to those reasons. Otherwise, it's just someone trying to manipulate is how most of them feel. Yeah. And so I think the, the humility of recognizing that we never have the full picture, that there's truths. You know, obviously God is reason, and so there's truths in reason, and he granted us that gift. Um, but to know that we don't know everything, right? And there's a truth in wanting to experience Christ personally to have that experience of his truth and of him and beauty you know uh, unfortunately i think in the modern era even for people who were trying to be traditional um the beauty of god in the church was so often neglected it wasn't talked about it wasn't um and and that's one of the transcendentals, you know, the true, the good, the beautiful, Thomas Aquinas says, right? Mm-hmm. It's how we know God. It's how we experience him, yeah. right? And that's, that's a place where some of the younger generation, you know, can relate to Aquinas. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded of the story of Thomas Merton, you know, who, was, who lived quite a while ago. He's not the younger generation. Mm-hmm. And um, whatever you think of his later works, his... Um, conversion to Catholicism happened because he was reading all of these, you know, Eastern philosophy books and super into that. He was an atheist. And then he read Aquinas Mm. and he realized that the things Aquinas wrote about God is being, you know, God is one and that those are really mystical, Mm. right? And the transcendentals, true, good and beautiful. And that's, you know, where we, we can't know God fully, but where we can know him by analogy and sort of know him and meet him 
you know, he recognized that and saw that we have a mystical faith. But I think the mysticism of that faith has been neglected, and it's a strength of, it's a strength of, the younger generation. Yeah. You know. So the humility, the being ready to look at things through a different perspective, you know, there are some new resources out there. Um, you know, a lot of bishops, barons, things that kind of kind of hits both, mm-hmm. right? Has the logic and also has the experience. It's focused on beauty. You know, there's new resources, new media yeah. that can help us, and to not just be upset that we can't understand the other. Yeah, excellent. I just am hoping that people take from this that we have more in common, mm-hmm. and it can seem like. I know it can seem like with a younger generation that doesn't believe in objective truth and thinks they can be anything literally like another race or another gender that it can seem like there's really no place we can meet but it's not true and there has always been this tension in the church and it's just part of us working together to work through it yeah excellent Thanks for tuning in to this week's One Body Stewarding God's Creation show. If you're a business or service that can support this One Body show, please note that your promotion would run three times during the show, which runs five times a week. Interested? Call 785-621-4110. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsborg Salina, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and 88.1 KBDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, pardon not your hearts. One body. Create